Sometimes when you begin watching a movie, there is this whole nice beginning part to the movie, right? There could be a really nice house, a really nice picket fence, kids and dogs playing in the front yard. But then the next scene has something at the bottom of the screen that says three days earlier, right? And maybe three days earlier, things were a lot different. Maybe the kids were screaming, the parents were screaming, the dogs were biting people, who knows. But the first scene shows this really great, awesome scene, but then the next scene, three days earlier. Well, as we come to this text this morning in Genesis chapter 2, beginning of verse 4, we kind of have one of those scenarios. We've gone through the entire first week of creation. We've seen all of the wonderful, great things that God has created. He rested on the seventh day, which we looked at last week. But now at the bottom of the screen, as it were, we see a few days before, or a couple days before, the event of God fashioning Adam on day six. And so what we see here is not happening post the first week of God creating. This is happening within that first week that God has created. So Moses, the author of Genesis, he tips us off in verse 4 that this is a brand new section of the book of Genesis. If you see in the beginning of verse 4 there, he says, these are the generations. And this is a very common literary device that Moses uses throughout the book of Genesis. He's going to do it in in other chapters like 5 and 6 and 10 and 11 and so on. And anytime you're reading through the book of Genesis, when you see these are the generations of, it's beginning a new chapter, as it were. It's beginning a new uh, break or chunk of information. And so we're to understand all that follows in Genesis 2 here beginning of verse 4, as, as kind of a new bit of information. And he's going to embellish a few important things for us, which are really the main points of the outline that I want you to see this morning. And if you want to follow along on the back of your bulletin, I have a, just a brief outline that is on there. But Moses begins by giving us a bigger picture and understanding of who God is. That's the first thing we begin to see within this. The next thing we see is that he explains, explains how man is created. The third thing we see is that he explains this garden in Eden that has been created. And then the last thing we see is what I'm going to be referring to as a covenant. At least I see it as a covenant, this relationship that he makes with Adam. But begin thinking with me this morning about how Moses helps us to to fully think about God in a more fuller way. Over and over in this chapter, he doesn't just use the word God. In chapter 1, that's what he did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in chapter 2, he starts to switch his language in how he refers to God. And you notice it all throughout this, this passage. It's sprinkled in. The Lord God is what he says. Again, you remember that first verse of the Bible. That God's existence is declared. In the beginning, God. No explanation, no rationale, no argumentation. It's just a very simple fact to Moses as the author. In the beginning, God. It's just a declaration of the fact. God. He is. He's eternal. He's the I Am. He simply is. And so we're introduced to this God from the first verse of the Bible. The word God coming from the Hebrew word Elohim, which we looked at in the first sermon in this series. And this word, Elohim, for God, indicates might or strength. It's really an emphasis of his power. But then we have this added word to the name God, and it's the word Lord. It's rendered here in all capital letters. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which many of you have probably heard before. 
So Genesis chapter 1 begins with the word Elohim, powerful, majestic, creator, great God. But when you add this word Yahweh, it begins to flavor the way that we understand who God is. And this is something that, that we may have missed as we, as we began reading our Bibles this year and go from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. We may have missed this, this switch, but this is not something the original readers would have missed. They would have noticed that Moses is suddenly calling God the Lord God. So what does, what does Lord, in all capital letters, what does Yahweh emphasize? As you scan through your Bibles, you see that this name pops up all over the place. And it it conveys God's uniqueness. It conveys God's eternality and His holiness and His power and His majesty. Some of what that word Elohim would convey. But it also gets more intimate than that. This word Yahweh is, is an intimate name for God. Because God doesn't just create all things, you remember. He doesn't just create all things and then leave it alone as an aloof, powerful God that doesn't have much interest. He is that great and powerful God, but He has plenty of interest. And that's indicated in the name <laughs> Yahweh. For instance, we see that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. He is merciful He is faithful and true. He is unchangeable. But also, He is present with His people. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It shows us that He is a covenant-keeping God. That this is seen throughout even just Genesis. And we're going to see this over and over in this book. That God makes covenants with people and He keeps His covenants. He's Yahweh. The merciful and compassionate, gracious, covenant-keeping God. And so you might be sitting there thinking, well, why does that really impact me? Because if you are a believer in Jesus, you trust and believe in the name of Jesus, you are brought into the new covenant. God doesn't relate to people outside of covenant. Do you understand this? Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, the way that God relates to people is always through covenant. When He saves you, He brings you into covenant with Himself and He relates to you based off of that covenant. So we have the Lord God here sprinkled throughout this passage, our covenant-keeping God. And if you notice, as we were reading it, He's he's the one that's still doing all of the work. As you look through our text, you see that the Lord God causes it not to rain. The Lord God forms the man. He breathes into man. He plants. He causes things to sprout. All of this is the work of God. But notice verses 5 to 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. When the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So first we see this Lord God, and then we see His creation, the pinnacle of His creation, this this man. Yesterday, Bethany and I went to um, Sheep's Gut General, um, which is a really cool little store in Whitefield um, that some of you have probably been to. But we went on a little bit of a date there yesterday for breakfast. And after breakfast, we walked around the store a little bit and looked at some of the items that were for sale there. And some of it um, was pottery. 
And both of us like looking at pottery, and we have some pottery at my house that used to belong to my grandmother, and so we think it's uh, a pretty cool thing. But it's neat to me because you can see the mark of its creator when you look at pottery oftentimes. You can see the design. You can see how the clay was, was lifted up by the potter's hands. You can even see some of the imperfections within the pottery that bring, its, that bring it character. And this is the imagery that we're meant to see as the Lord God is fashioning Adam from the dust of the ground. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So God has fashioned every single one of us. Like, like a potter, he has, he has brought us together. He has marked us with his own image. We are made in the image of God. He has fashioned every single one of us. And so God is the creator and the sustainer of all those whom he has created. And this helps us to truly understand our place for him, doesn't it? None of you would look at a piece of pottery and say that it is more valuable than the person who made it, right? The same with us. Understanding that we are clay and that we have been fashioned by a creator, it helps us to understand who we are and where we stand before God. Romans chapter 9 famously says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. The potter, the Lord God, has every right over his clay. He can do whatever he wants with the clay. It's his clay, right? He made it and he can make what he wants out of it. And so he makes Adam here, but all of us have been made by God. Adam is clay. He's dust. And so are we. God is the potter. And as the clay, Adam is to do exactly and to be exactly who the potter has made him to be. If you were to make something and you said, this is going to be my coffee mug. That's that's responsibility, right? Or if we were living in other times, we have this big pitcher. This is going to get my water from the well, right? That has different uses. And the maker has the right to say what the clay will do. The word here for, the Hebrew word here for man is Adam. The word for man is Adam. And you'll never guess what the word for ground is. Adamah. God creates Adam from the Adamah. He creates the man from the ground. So Adam is literally made or, or, or named after the stuff he is made out of. How would you like that? How, how do you think Adam and Eve's counseling sessions would go? And marriage counseling. And Adam and Eve are sitting there with their counselor. And Adam's like, she treats me like dirt. <laughs> You think of the old Kansas song, the band. They're at least partially right. We are dust in the wind. We are dust in the wind. We live in these bodies and they return to dust. Ten out of ten people die. All of us here are going to die. Our bodies are going to lose their breath. Our souls will be with the Lord. But our bodies will be left here to return to dust at least until they're resurrected and glorified. But friends, this this shouldn't lead us to despair. 
Just because Adam was made out of dust didn't mean that he had to spit to despair of that fact. Just because we're made out of dust and that we're going to return to dust doesn't mean that we should despair of that fact. Right? We are going to return to it. And Kansas was right. We are dust in the wind. But we are not only dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. We are not just dust in the wind. We are so much more than that. Why? Because of what we spent so much time considering. That we're made in the image of God. Image bearers of the potter who made us. And the good news is that God never forgets what you are made out of. He knows as the potter what He made you out of. And He never forgets that you are dust. And I just find that comforting. You think of Psalm 103. As the Father shows compassion to His children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear Him. Now listen. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows you're dust. Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear Him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The the fact that we are made out of dust, it doesn't excuse us from our sin. The fact that we're made out of dust doesn't excuse us from our shortcomings. So we can never go and say, hey God, I'm dust. That's, That's why I'm doing all these terrible things. You know, onward. See you later. No. But God does acknowledge us for who we are. And the interesting thing about this to me as I was studying this is that God doesn't just acknowledge us for who we are as dust, but the most remarkable thing is that He took on who we are and what we are made out of. That God took on dusty flesh to Himself. That God became flesh. The dust of the ground would be taken on by the eternal. So Jesus is conceived by the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John tells us that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness that He was manifested in the flesh. Or Paul in Philippians, he says, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus comes and He assumes the very stuff that you and I are made out of taking up flesh so that He could lay it down. But the difference between you and Jesus, and me and Jesus, is that His flesh never saw corruption. The flesh of Jesus never saw corruption. Jesus goes to the tomb for a few days, but then on Easter morning, He rises up out of the tomb. So He takes on dust. But the dust that Jesus took on, the flesh that Jesus took on, would never corrode. Even now, Jesus is in heaven, the risen and glorified, ascended Christ in his glorified state, in the state that all of us who trust in Jesus will one day be in. We will also with him have glorified bodies. Do you ever think about that? Perfect bodies. No more aches or pains. No more sin that you have to deal with anymore. And I always struggle talking about kind of these ethereal concepts because I don't want you to think that we're going to be in heaven and I'm going to have a glorified body and that means I'm going to be able to see through you. Like In heaven, everybody's going to have x-ray vision because we have glorified bodies. No. Jesus had a glorified body after His resurrection and they touched Him. And He ate. Oftentimes when I think about it, I think about it more in terms of density. Everything's so much more dense. The the moments aren't fleeting. 
We're not grabbing on to time. We trust in Him. We believe in Him. Have you? Have you believed in this Christ who took on flesh so that He could lay it down? Do you genuinely believe this message? So the Lord God creates this man out of the dust in our Genesis text. But how is Adam animated? We've kind of left him there. He's fashioned, but he's lying there. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So this is really intimate. God forms him, and then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam's heart starts to beat. Adam's brain fires up. Adam's lungs begin to fill with God's very breath. He's alive. The text says that that man became a living creature. The idea of being a living soul, a living being, a living person, a living creature. This carries the idea of full and complete personality. Again, Adam wasn't going to be set into development. Adam was made as a, as a, uh, a mature man. But I want you to notice the place next where God puts Adam. He puts Adam in a garden in Eden. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to talk much about um, these two trees this morning, but part of why I wanted Chris to read Revelation 22 is because within Revelation 22, you see that tree of life mentioned. So God plants a garden in Eden and notice the differentiation in language that we often use. That at least this first time that this is used, he says the garden in Eden. He doesn't say the garden of Eden. And I think that part of what that's supposed to represent is that Eden, Eden is a much bigger place. That it's a larger geographical area that the garden is placed within. But it is a special place. The entire earth would have been a lush and beautiful place, but how much more beautiful Eden must have been. It's distinguished from the rest of creation and was probably destroyed during Noah's flood. So when the flood comes, it probably wiped out Eden. God had made certain distinctions between all of the animals. He made distinctions between the plants, between male and female. He made a distinction between the seventh day and the six other days. And here he's drawing a distinction between the garden and the rest of the area. So there's, there's something very special about this place. Many believing the garden in Eden to be a prototypical temple. That this was a special place where the presence of God would be and where he would reside with man. In Genesis chapter 3, 8, we see that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The garden would be the place of God's presence, which is a facet of the tabernacle of the temple and the tabernacle that the Jews would worship in. Or even for ourselves, like we ourselves are the temple of God. And as a church, being living stones, being built into a spiritual house, like Peter says, God now dwells within us by the Spirit. But before the fall, God would walk with man in this garden temple. His presence would be here. But the garden was also the place where Adam would do all of his work. 
And so God puts him into the garden to work and to keep it. It's often noted that work is pre-fall. That the reason all of us work is not because of the fall. It's not as though, oh, the fall happened, but before then it was some kind of paradise where you just lounge around and drink lemonade all day. It wasn't like that at all. It would have been work. And this was Adam's responsibility. He was to work and to keep the Garden of Eden. And there even seems to be these indicators within the book of Ezekiel. You can read it this afternoon, if you'd like, in chapter 28, where Adam is being described as a sort of priest. So you look at Ezekiel 28, and Adam is portrayed in in sort of a priestly garb, acting as a priest. And he's doing this serving and obeying God, this working and keeping in this beautiful setting of the Garden in Eden. Moses tells us about a river that flows out of Eden. Again, bringing to mind what we saw in Revelation 22, where there is a river that will be flowing from the throne of God, and that's where the tree of life is, that nothing is going to be cursed. There will be no more night, and we're going to reign with Him forever and ever. So again, if you're wondering to yourself, well, how does all of that in Revelation 22 with the tree of life and the throne of God and the water and everything and the Garden of Eden all the way at the beginning, these two bookends of the entire Bible, what does that have to do with me? But what I want to encourage you with this morning is that you shouldn't despair over the fact that the Garden of Eden is gone, that paradise is lost, that it's all in the past. Don't despair over that. Instead, I want you to rejoice and be hopeful. Because we are going back to the garden. We're going there. We're going back when the new heavens and the new earth are finished. We will rejoice and worship and serve our God as Adam was supposed to do. We're going to worship him. We're going to reign with him. We'll be forever with the Lord. And his very presence is going to be among us. And there will be no fear of losing it. There's no fear that we're going to lose it as Adam eventually did. And so this is really good news. This is great news. That the garden and its beauty may be lost, but we are going back to the garden, the royal garden of our God, and we will be with him forever. And so we've seen the Lord God, we've seen the man, we've seen the garden. And I'd like you to see finally the covenant. That God doesn't just create man and leave him alone, or create man, give him a job to do, and then move on to something else, or act as his boss. He creates man, he gives him a place to work, but then he actually enters into a relationship with his creation. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse 15 shows us all of the pieces that we've seen to this point. He's mentioned the Lord God, man, the garden, and Adam is put there to work and to keep it. But then Adam gives, or excuse me, the Lord God gives Adam a command. Positively, God says, You can eat of every tree of the garden. Negatively, God says, you may not eat of this certain tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then he warns Adam. He says, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. And so ultimately, there's only that one command. Don't eat of the tree. Don't touch it. Everything bad will happen if you touch that tree. 
So as one author has said, the future of the race, the human race, centers upon this single prohibition. And do we not even now, don't you feel right now in your bones the results of Adam breaking this command? That all of us have been affected by, this, by, this, by his disobedience and we don't even realize how deep it all goes. And so yes, we can talk about the big things like the, the cancer and the heart attacks and all of that that are a result of the fall. Or the immorality and the murder and all of that that are a result of the fall. But there is so much more. Of course, death itself. But all of the millions and billions of sin and diseases that lead to death. So all of us are marching toward that. We are all going to die. And So while this passage doesn't show us Adam's disobedience, we get that in chapter 3, we do see the very clear prohibition from God. Don't touch that tree. But within verses 15 to 17, I think what we have here is what many have called the covenant of works. That within these verses, God is entering into a covenant with Adam. So God is the creator. He's the potter. Adam is the creation, the clay. And he enters into a relationship with Adam. A conditional covenant. You see that there's conditions here. The covenant is based on the condition of obedience. Adam has to obey. If he doesn't obey, then things are going to get really bad really quick. But if Adam obeys, there's going to be life. Perfection. That things would have been good if Adam obeyed. That Cain would not have killed Abel. That the sons of God wouldn't intermarry with the daughters of men in chapter 6, bringing about Noah's flood. That everything would have been wonderful. It would have been paradise gained. But Adam breaks the covenant. He breaks the deal that God makes with him. But in regard to this covenant, you might be thinking to yourself that you don't see the word covenant here, so there mustn't really be a covenant. But that would be a word concept fallacy. Let me illustrate that for you. If I said to you, pigskin, pads, helmet, gridiron, grandstands, you would think about a certain thing. What what am I talking about? Football. But I didn't say the word football. And that's what we have here. All of the language of covenant is used. Even though the word isn't used, all of the language is used. And so you have the parties involved in the covenant. You have the Lord God and man. You have the stipulation, eat of every tree but one. You have the implied promise that if you succeed, you will live. But you have the very clear threat that if you fail, Adam, that you will die. And so all of this is the language of covenant that even though the word isn't used... But then we also have in the book of Hosea, and you can look at this again this afternoon, in chapter 6, verse 7, we have the word covenant in relation to Adam. Hosea says, in reference to the people of God, but like Adam, they, God's people, transgressed the covenant. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Adam is used as an example of transgressing a covenant with God. And so where we leave the text this morning as I hope with a fuller understanding of who the Lord God is. He's this covenant-keeping God. He's the creator. But he's also the covenant-keeper, merciful and compassionate. That we have man. That he's created out of dust. He's breathed into with life. The potter's great masterpiece. And we have the garden where, where his masterpiece is placed into. And his responsibility is to serve and to obey, to work and to keep, to be a guardian and a gardener. But the relationship has also been established. God has entered into covenant with Adam. He sets his expectations 
There'll be punishment for disobedience, but there'll be reward if there's obedience. But there's something missing. In fact, there's a couple of things that are missing. There's even another covenant spoken about in chapter 2, and another person spoken about in chapter 2, and that would be the covenant of marriage that Adam would enter into, and that would be his wife named Eve, and we will meet her next week, and we will talk about that subject then as well. Let's pray.